Today we're going to be in Matthew 22. And the last time we saw a really awesome and encouraging parable of the king giving a wedding feast for his son. And we know that was a picture of God the Father and God the Son. We see a call to salvation. We see that all are welcome. As we go through this parable, there's no mistaking that everyone is called to salvation. And that's the beauty of God's love for us, no matter what we did. And I still have some come up to me, even to recently, and say, I was told I couldn't be saved because of such and such a reason. And I will tell you that it's false. It actually saddens me that some are out there thinking that they're among the damned. Listen, God, that's, that's a lie from the devil. God wants us all to come to salvation. It's very clear in his scripture. Uh, we know that salvation also has its benefits. To know the assurance of salvation. In 1 John 5, John tells us that we can know we have eternal life. So there's no guesswork involved. Once we come to the cross... Once we've repented of our lives, we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, you know, it's good. God fills us. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. A part of him resides in us. I mean, that's just so unfathomable to us humans, us frail beings. But it's true, and these are the benefits. Now, today, we're going to see Jesus get the royal voir dire of the religious leaders. They're all going to come up in force. And they're going to question Jesus because you claim to be the Messiah? Well, prove it. We're going to question you. We're going to put you to the test to see if you can do this. Now, we see a problem, and we will, in the Jewish culture at the time. Uh, even secular sources will say, say that it was starting to go down, downhill. The spirituality, the spiritual system, the religious system was corrupt at the time. Many sources agree uh, with that. But we're also going to see that there are problems in the Christian community today. And as we go through the scripture, you know, we can't just look back and point the finger at them. We have to ask ourselves, do we own any of this today? Because the Bible is very clear that the state of faith, the state of the church, will go increasingly towards not better, but apostasy before the Lord returns. So, of course, we're going to see this around us. And we'll look at the parallel, parallels. So starting with... Uh, chapter 22, starting with verse 23. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, Jesus, and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, let his, left his wife to his brother. Second, or likewise, the second and the third, even to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, the context, again, is what is the motive behind the religious system? Well, their motive is to hopefully trip up Jesus so that they could regain power and control over the people. Jesus wasn't trying to... Uh, gain power. He was just doing what he was called to do. And, you know, when we read about Jesus and, and his graciousness and his lovingness and his, you know, he's the son of God, of course, he, he gained the following. So the religious leaders were feeling a little jealous, a little slighted. And if they could put to rest this whole Messiah thing, well, they could regain control over the populace. So that was their motive. Now, we spoke about the Pharisees. We spoke about the Herodians. And here we see the Sadducees take a crack at Jesus. Now, what do we know about the Sadducees? 
Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They were aristocrats. They were politicians. They were part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews at the time. And they were priests. It's really sad. See, a priest in those days was supposed to be uh, a mediator between God and man. A priest was supposed to receive the sacrifices of the people and, and bring it to the Lord. Of course, we know that Jesus took that role and there's no longer need for priests. He was the ultimate high priest, the book of Hebrews tells us. So they were the mediators. They were supposedly bringing the people an understanding of God, but they failed. We can look at the Sadducees and say, well, how could they be of the priestly class and not believe in angels, not believe in the resurrection, not believe in the power of God? And I would ask you, 2,000 years later, how can we see religious leaders today preach and go on television and the same thing, not believe in these things? You see, what happens is they take our God, the God of the Bible, the God of miracles, the God of big things, and what they do is they shrink them down into a little God with a little G. Very sad, but it still happens today. So when we ask ourselves these questions, we have to ask ourselves, what about today, instead of just pointing the finger back then? Let me introduce you to desire-based theology. as a, a phrase that I coined. I don't do it very often. But desire-based theology is basically you have a certain lifestyle. You have a certain picture of a God. He's not really the God of the Bible, but he's the God of our own making. Well, if I were God, I would do this. And we paint God into a corner, and then we say we're going to hop from church to church to church to church until we find the preacher who satisfies our desire-based theologies. Not necessarily looking for the truth, but looking for what we want to hear, a God in our own image. And there's so many churches and denominations around, well, it happens very often. I'm just going to kind of go back and forth between today and 2,000 years. You see, the Sadducees assumed that even if the resurrection was true, that it was a continuation of this life because they loved this world. Because they were on top in this world. Of course they loved it. Let me read to you 1 John 2, which is always a timely scripture no matter where you read it and when you read it. St. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So here's the hypothetical situation. Deuteronomy 25 spoke about Leverite marriage, which just, just meant that, uh, again, if a woman is married to a man and somehow the brother or the man dies an untimely death, well, the other brothers should step up to the plate, or at least one of them, and marry her and carry on the family name. So in their religious minds, they had a hypothetical situation based on Deuteronomy 25 that they were going to trap Jesus. And the hypothetical situation was basically simple. They said there was a, a man with us or a woman with us. Not sure if they were making the story up or it actually existed. But a man was married to a woman. He died. So the next brother said, well, I'll marry her and I'll raise up children. So he marries her and he dies. And all, all the way down the line until... You know, they all died. You got to wonder about what it was like being married to this woman, but <laughs> that's not in here, of course. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, you could see them throwing this at Jesus and going, so 
whose wife is she in the resurrection? Bob's, Joe's, Jack's, Fred's, and all the way down the line. Well, in their minds, it was a good question. Well, here's Jesus' response, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I love his word. I love his wording. Right in the scripture, this is God's word, which means he's speaking to you and to me. Quote from uh, Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now let me turn to Luke 20. Because in Luke's gospel, he hears the conversation as well, and he says, well, this is also important, so he adds this as well. In Luke 20, verse 34, only three verses, and Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. It's powerful. So Jesus blows them away with spiritual truths that they should have known being religious leaders. Number one, he says, you're mistaken. If we look at the semantic range of that Greek word, it also means you're deceived. Now imagine a religious leader hearing this from Jesus. No doubt it would have been insulting. You could either be convicted by that well, you could become enraged by what he was saying. How dare he insult me? Does he know who I am? You're deceived, not knowing the scriptures. Wow. You see, their personal biases led them away from God's word. And that's why at Calvary Chapel, I love it. People say, ah, oh, that was a great message. It's not because of me. It's because I'm using good material. How do you, really, how do you go wrong with God's word? You can't. Uh, so, you know, I... That's why we do that here. We use God's word. We want to stay in that foundation. The second point here is that he gives us insight into the afterlife and to angels. Now, we don't become angels. I've heard this at funerals. It's not theologically accurate. It's not true. We don't get our wings and fly around with a harp and sit in a cloud somewhere for all of eternity. That is not what he's saying here. We are as the angels, and he goes in to explain what they're like. And he's trying to help us to get a picture of heaven not being there. So there'll be a different order of things. No marriage, no death, different types of relationships. Now, I have to digress for a little bit because I, ask, I get asked a lot of these questions. Well, will I know my loved ones? Sure, I believe so. Somebody actually wrote a book. His name was Randy Alcorn uh, on heaven. Great book. He takes all the scriptures from the Old and New Testament and really gives us comfort and encouragement as we read and understand what it's going to be like. Very scripturally sound. I enjoyed the book. I will just say this. Um, I look at my son, who's 11 years old, and sometimes he can be very annoying. I don't see him in heaven running around bothering people for all of eternity. You know, I see him, if we were to be taken today, to be at a not even an age, but a maturity level where he can fellowship with God, where he has a greater understanding. We can look at maybe our grandparents uh, or those who are aged, who are suffering, maybe with dementia or something. Does that mean for all of eternity they're going to be saying, who are you, who are you? Absolutely not. 
I believe, and I know this from the scripture, that all those troubling things that we deal with here will be washed away. And we'll all be equal in some level. And we saw that with the, uh, the marriage feast, with the wedding garment, how we were all equalized in the kingdom, which is beautiful. Uh, some people ask questions, maybe some of the young people, well, we're, well there, listen, I've heard these questions, will there be sex in heaven? Okay? Satan tries to get us to believe different things to get us not to want to go God's way. That's his design. Whatever he can do to pull us away from God. So God's not sitting up there looking down at us saying, you better enjoy everything now because when when you come up here, you're going to hate it. It's going to be boring for eternity. I'm going to stick you on a cloud with a harp and that's it. (laughs) No, I don't believe that. And actually, that idea of heaven came in many centuries later. It wasn't the idea of the early church and the disciples, certainly not reflected in Scripture. I've taught on this before, and Thursday night, I just was saying, okay, Lord, how do I put this together? So, and I believe I got an answer immediately. So let me kind of run through this and then give you what I believe the Lord showed me. When it comes to this life, it can be tough. We have financial problems. We have loved ones that pass away. Sometimes we have medical issues. And life here can be a drag sometimes. So what do we do as humans? This is what humans do. Humans abuse things to make them feel good. Okay, we talk about sexuality. We spoke about that from the pulpit, the different chemicals between the the neurons, the synapses, and how the dopamine and different chemicals wash through our brains and give us a feeling of euphoria. Others will abuse drugs. It's the same effect. There's a dopamine response. You've got to understand the neurochemistry of the, of the brain. It's actually very fascinating. And what happens is there's a flood that washes through the brain of chemicals, and you get this feeling of euphoria. Others will, not me, but others will jump, jump off of bridges on a bungee cord and bounce up and down a few times, and they get a noradrenaline rush. They get adrenaline that runs through their system. So what happens, humans abuse things that feel good because life sometimes can be a little bit of a downer. So I'm like, Lord, how do I help them to understand? I mean, I don't think we'll have the same type of brains and the neurochemistry will be spiritual beings, but we'll have a better sense of well-being. And the answer that I felt that I received was the euphoria comes from being in God's presence, right? Now, I believe, and I believe the more we understand the scripture, the more we read God's word, God never takes anything away from us that's pleasurable and says, I withhold it from you, never for you again. I believe a lot of that euphoria, I I believe it'll be completely different. Um, Let me just read a scripture in 1 Corinthians 2. As it is written, okay, this is in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, but it's also repeated in the New Testament. We need to take notice when that happens. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So, I'm even doing my best, but I'm falling short because this is an awesome, infinite, loving God. So just some of the things we're just going to have to go on by faith, that it's just going to be great. Okay. And honestly, my rushes, you know, when I became a police officer driving 90 miles an hour to a hot call was an adrenaline rush for me. But my rushes now are to see those who are destroying their lives, they're on drugs, they're self-destructive, they quit it. They come to the cross, and their lives change, and they become productive. That, to me, is exciting. That is a rush. 
uh, my leaders and I, after church, we, we get so excited. We talk about what happened to church today and uh, the conversations we've had with some of you and the questions. That's exciting. That is a rush. But it doesn't compare for when we are in the presence of God worshiping him. It's going to just be great for eternity. Um, I'm just looking forward to it. Third point, verse 32. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we read the scripture, they're not dead. Okay, there's a tomb somewhere of these guys, right? There may be bones that are still available. There may be uh, whatever the case may be. But God is basically saying, I'm the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not over there rotting in the ground. They're with me. The essence of who they are, they're with me. They're my children. I love them. Sans the, the, the pain and the suffering and the heartbreak and the relationship issues, that's all gone. Revelation 21 makes that clear. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying. For the former things, that's from the former world. That's from here. God says, in my world, you don't have any of that stuff anymore. That's an encouraging message this morning. However, some deny the power of God. And some pulpits and some teachings deny the power of God. I have seen him do miracles. I still believe he can do miracles. And the truth is, this is reflected in scripture. If we have such a low opinion of our God that we don't think he's a big God, he's not going to, even Jesus, when he went around, there was some cities that they had such a low opinion of him and, you know, they weren't really, uh, their faith wasn't that great. Jesus, Jesus didn't do many miracles, the Bible says. I believe personally in a big God. I believe he can do anything. And I'll tell you what, he just keeps blowing me away with the stuff that he shows me. So that's great. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets coming from Deuteronomy 6. So the Pharisees, these guys were legalists. They were meticulous. They did believe in angels and the resurrection. So we would see at times them kind of battling each other about doctrine. They would argue the doctrine. Although they were so stuffy and so tight, in their mannerisms that many just, just didn't want to follow them. And, and they, they felt that they even couldn't. So what we have here is that the Pharisees and at least one lawyer, uh, Mark's gospel says that he was also a scribe. In other words, a scribe was a person who in those days would write in, in the Hebrew, they would write the, the law, they would write God's word, and they would copy it. There was no copy machines back then. It was 1500s, uh, the Gutenberg printing press. But back then, they didn't have that. So... You, if you were meticulous and you didn't mind a tedious job, this job was for you. All you did all day was copy stuff. And if you made a mistake, there was no erasers. They had to take the whole scroll, throw it in the garbage, burn it, and start all over again. Yeah, some of you are like, whoa, I couldn't do that. I think I'd pull my hair out if that was the case. But the, the scribes also became lawyers. Why? No, no, dis, no discrepancy in the scripture. Because they knew the word so well, they could memorize it. They, they probably saw the Hebrew letters in their sleep. So they knew all of God's word. They became lawyers because now they could know God's word so well that they could pick anywhere and, and quote it. Unfortunately, they would also use the law to manipulate it. But let me just say this. Jesus was challenged. Sometimes we believe that as believers, you know, things are going to get easier when we grow in Christ. 
And I've had this discussion with some. As you grow in Christ, you'll be challenged more. The closer you are to Christ, the more some will challenge you. So keep that in mind. Now let me read Mark 12, 29, which also references this portion of Scripture in this conversation. A little bit of a difference here, and only because it's a different part of Deuteronomy that Mark is saying, well, I think that this is appropriate as well. Uh, Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered him, same conversation, the first of all commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, also found in Deuteronomy. This is known, for those of you who have a Jewish background, as the Shema. The Orthodox Jews back then and even today, it's a long-held tradition, would, would recite this uh, daily. Now, this is what's fascinating. I just feel like I need to get to this, is that when he said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is interesting word in the Hebrew. See, in the English, when we say one, it's one. Now, if we use a modifier before one, sort of as the only one, or a united one, it helps to take one and give us a better understanding. But in the Hebrew, there were two different words. The one word was echad, and the other word was yachid. Yachid in the Hebrew meant only one. Sort of like when you were in school, the absolute set, absolutely one. But echad meant a united one. Guess which word Moses has used when God was speaking about himself and said, Moses, write about me all the time. Echad, echad, echad. So what we find is God gives a glimpse of himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because he calls himself a united one instead of a solitary or an absolute one. Good stuff in here. Verse 37, Jesus not only gives him the most important commandment, but he gives the second one as well. Now let's start with the first one. And maybe we may be challenged as we start to go through this. The first commandment is to love God. Now we can gloss over this and say, oh yeah, I love God. Well, let's, let's look at this for a little bit. Is the only connection that we receive to God in church on Sunday? Can we really say we love God if we only think about him for 45 minutes on one day? When we love someone, and it's no different with God, we want a relationship. Do we really have a relationship with God? Do we desire time with him? Do we want what he wants, right? Are we putting the time in with God? And if we are, are we doing it for the right reasons? Well, Pastor Joe made me feel guilty yesterday, so uh, this week I'm going to put a little time with him. <laughs> it's not, probably not the best reason. You see, if we love someone, we want to please them. And I can use examples of me and my son, I could use an example with me and my wife. I remember when we bought um, the current house that we're living in, it was a real fixer-upper. And I said, honey, this house is just a dump. I gotta start <laughs> tearing things apart, you know, fixing things. And she's like, well, you know, there's not one plant outside. She goes, I'd like to make it pretty outside. Okay, babe, that's fine. But I didn't really care. It was also young in my marriage. Um, over time, I started seeing her desire for the things that she did. And I, was, I started to take an interest. And I raised bees, for those of you who don't know. So she would buy plants that my bees liked. You know? So it, it, we're kind of nature freaks if you haven't figured that out yet. But here's the truth. I took up an interest in what she took up an interest in because it was pleasing to her. And I'll tell you what. I can tell you the difference between an Easter lily and a canna lily. <laughs> it gets better. 
A canna lily really isn't a lily. The genus is canna, where the Easter lily genus is lilium. What do you think of that, honey? <laughs> so how do we please God? Hey, listen, this is on recording, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Number one, we pay attention to God because we desire him. And for me, I know even as a pastor, I, I still, when I uh, covered that part, Jesus says, you know, ask God for as much as the Holy Spirit as you want. Boy, that's just been a pursuit of mine. Lord, Holy Spirit, oh Lord, just fill me more with the Holy Spirit. And when you're talking to someone and when you're solving somebody's problems or when you're praying for someone and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, boy, what a change there is. So we desire him. We desire more of him. Two, we share similar interests, right? What does Jesus say in John 14? Again, I love God, do we? In John 14, Jesus takes the whole world, all six point something billion uh, people on the planet, and he divides the whole world up in just the two categories. Here's the category of those that love me, and literally, here's the category of those that don't love me or hate me. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. So I would ask any believer or someone who called themselves a believer, if you love God, are you following his word? Because how do you know that you love his word if you don't know what his word says? So God looks out for our interests, but we also need to look out for his interests as well. Third point, are we obedient to him? Remember, he is an authority over us. He is our heavenly father. Is there an obedience factor in our life? If obedience and service to him and the love of his word is not a part of our life, we can say we love him all we want, but the scripture tells us that we really are lacking in a relationship with him. So it's very important. And for new believers, I have to tell you, a lot of the Christian culture has become commercialized. It's become plastic. It's become a facade. Don't follow that. You know, hang out with a group of people that really love God and really want to, you know, have a desire to get closer to him. Swim against the tide. And the second greatest commandment is to love others. We see this in Leviticus 19. We also see this personified in the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus gives a, an illustration to say, well, who was the, 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 the neighbor to the person who fell among thieves, was beat up, left for dead, and the religious men walked right by him. They actually walked on the other side of the road. They, they looked the other way. They didn't want to see his issue and deal with him. But a Samaritan who the Jews hated at the time, he's the one, the good Samaritan, who took care of him. What Jesus shows us is that anyone can be our neighbor. So basically, he opens up that, that door and he broadens it because the people in those days were very selective on who they were going to love and who they weren't going to love. In verse 40, he says, all the law and the prophets, all of God's word hang on these two commandments. So the question is, so you mean to tell me to love God and then to love others, are the, out of all these commandments, there were 613 that the Jews counted in the Bible. That's a lot. So many hundreds to do these things and so many hundreds, be, be aware, don't do these things. You're telling me that these two are the ones that the whole Bible, if you take this whole book together, this whole collection of works, and the, and the understanding is that's what it is, and the answer is yes. This is a book of love relationships. Don't think that, listen, we all have someone that we love, right? Uh, where do you think that came from? If God gave us the ability to love and to share our love and affection, receive and give affection, well, guess what? That emanated from him. He, loves, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
You know, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the son, the world might be saved. That is a love relationship. Very important. You see, basically these two commandments, love God, which is found in the scripture, love others. There's two types of relationships. There's horizontal relationships where we love everyone else made in his image, right? And then there's a vertical relationship where we love God. And sometimes we get them confused. We have too much of the horizontal and we put that before the vertical. See, the vertical one comes first. And some of our relationships aren't doing so well because we have our priorities out of sync. When you think about someone you love, even your children, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping your children, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Or are you worshiping God? Because once the vertical one is set straight, all the other ones start to make sense afterwards. It becomes more clear. Mark 12, again, I I love the fact that uh, there's just so much diversity in these gospels. In Mark 12, starting with verse 32, he records the scribe's answer to what Jesus says. Now, this uh, lends me to believe that the scribe was really genuine. He says this in verse 32. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. And I just say it with emphasis because I believe that's, he just was excited to hear the word of the Son of God. And it just took him aback. Wow, man, you truly are who you say you are. Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. Wow, the whole Bible's been saying this for so long. I desire obedience over sacrifice, right? So when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. So I believe that this man had a desire for greater things. Now remember, he's surrounded by his peers, which are opposed to Jesus. And he hears the words of of Christ, and he's just blown away. And he, he breaks ranks with his peers because he really does have a love of God and he really desires those things. And he probably took heat from his peers when Jesus left, no doubt. And we may take heat from our peers as well if we have a great desire for him and they don't. Verse 41, Matthew 22, finishing up. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, quote, from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Well, we notice the difference is that He was being accosted. He was being uh, examined. He was being, uh, you know, they were just throwing everything out at him. But here's a change. Jesus now starts to ask them questions. He starts to ask them questions. This is a very masterful riddle or question that he posed because everyone knew that this was a Davidic psalm. It was also a messianic psalm. So David, in the spirit, is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, he's speaking about the Messiah. So this is a good question because... David's great, 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 grandson, so many generations down, David is speaking about him. 
Now, this would be unheard of for a man to speak about his, you know, all the way down the line, someone, in, in a sense, because of the culture in a patriarchal society, inferior to him. He would never call his great-great-great-great-grandson Lord. That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus knew that they knew that. So he poses this question. Now, here's the quandary. Well, this tells us that the Messiah is far above a mere man. So who is he? What is he? They couldn't answer the question. Sometimes the best way to get someone to quit challenging you is to ask them questions back, you know? If you know someone who says, ah, I don't believe in God. All right, well, how did this stuff get here? Well, it's the Big Bang. Well, how did all those elements get here? Well, you start asking questions and be like, I don't know. I haven't studied it well enough. Maybe it's something you should look into. All right? Verse 46, we keep reading that they were amazed at his teaching. They stopped questioning him. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you have an understanding of God's word, when you have a love for God's word, your critics won't be able to stand up to you. And I've seen some of these debates where it becomes now a personal attack ad hominem because we can't discuss the issues anymore because you really know the word. So somebody starts to, you know, kind of go at you and they'll find something about you personally to pick you apart because they can't compete with God's word and the Holy Spirit's leading. So as we look at this, we see that there were some entrenched ideas in the Jewish culture at the time. And the spiritual system wasn't making it any better. The people lived by loopholes or they were so dejected. Uh, some of the, what society cons was considered the worst of society turned to a life of crime or a life of sin because they just looked at the religious system and said, oh, I just can't compete with that. I'm damned. Some do that today because religion's teaching them the wrong things. We're not teaching people about a relationship with God and God loves us. And it doesn't matter what we did. We don't have to be among the damned. He loves you. Right? That's the first step there. We can look at the Sadducees. They loved this world. They worshipped their status. They were the top of the top. They were the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling class in Jewish society. Is it any wonder that they loved the world? Okay, now let's fast forward. And I'm not going to judge anyone's heart, but there are some who call themselves believers who are on the top of the world. And their theology starts to change because they have so much stuff here. They have this love of the world that they can't give a full effort to the Lord because they have it too good here. It's too, Jesus, when he speaks about the, uh, the seeds, he speaks about the seed growing and the deceitfulness of riches and, and stuff just choking out the fruitfulness of the world. We don't want that. That's not good. We can look at the Pharisees. They were legalists. They were meticulous. They were stuffy. And I'm sure we know someone who may be a believer that's very legalistic. And I'll tell you what, as a new believer, I went through that phase. I don't know why. A lot of new believers go through that. You know, they're always looking to correct you. They're always on top of you. There's no life. There's no spirit. There's just rules and, and, and harshness. No love there. We can look at the Herodians. The Herodians were part Jewish. And when it, it was expedient for them, they said, oh, yeah, we're part Jewish. But they were also getting their bread buttered by Rome. Their power came from Rome. They were two-faced. It was a facade, right? They went wherever the wind blew, and it was in their favor. Well, we don't want that to happen here, do we? To be two-faced. That we just go wherever the wind blows, and wherever there's something favorable to us, that we follow. That's not good either. Herodian Christianity. And the fourth one, the lawyers and the scribes, constantly arguing scripture. In this case, this guy seemed to be pretty right on. But for the most part, Jesus chastised them as a group later on, and we'll get to that. 
These guys knew the Bible. They were constantly arguing scripture. They were polemics. They were antagonistic. Again, there was no spirit. There are some that come into church that know the Bible well, but use it to manipulate to their own advantage. There's a breed of, of Christianity that's very argumentative, very harsh, that they'll come in and they'll just look to challenge you to see if you know what they know. There's no spirit in that. There's no love in that. Right? I would just say this, that what God is looking for, because he destroyed that system. Uh, it wasn't but a few decades later, history tells us that the Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, raised it. Not one stone was left upon another. And a lot of these groups just, just splintered off. They just faded into oblivion. Do we ever hear of any Pharisees today or Sadducees or Herodians? No, they're all gone because God wouldn't have it. Because what God's people did was they got entrenched in the culture and there was a lack of authenticity. So I would just say to, as a lesson to us is let's look at our culture as Christianity. You know, if you are discipling somebody, you know someone is a new believer, there's going to be things that you want to steer them away from in the Christian culture because there's a facade there. You want to bring somebody to the Lord? We want to love someone? The answer is authenticity. That's the key. I was reading an article, and I read it from the pulpit, about some young, young believers that are uh, going to follow some of these churches that are you know, played off as hip and cool, and they, they change the decorations, and the pastor dresses a certain way to be hip and cool and uses their lingo, and sometimes to the point of um, really compromising uh, decency. And these Christian guys wrote this article. They said, we're the 20-somethings. You know what our people are looking for? Our generation, they're looking for authenticity. They're not seeing it in the world. They're not seeing it in the church. Jesus is attractive, but we need to make it attractive. And the only way we can make it attractive is not by trying really hard, but just by being authentic. So let's take that to heart today as we close in prayer and that we look at our lifestyles and we look at what's going on here and that maybe we can learn some lessons from this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as always, we're blown away by your word. Your word is life. Your word is spirit.